let me pray for us, and uh, we, will, we will get into it, all right? Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you are committed to building your church on the foundation of Christ, his death, his resurrection. We pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment as we discuss, uh, in particular, the atonement, and that we don't get lost in the weeds for the larger picture of the story of redemption, um, laid out from the foundation of the world. So we pray that you would be with us during this time in a special way as we listen um, and learn from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you were here last time, uh, you know that we started uh, discussing effective particular redemption, sometimes poorly referred to as limited atonement, and uh, it was likely an overwhelming introduction. Who, by the way, I know we had a skeleton crew because it was Labor Day. Who was here last Sunday school? Okay, so like, not all, okay. Like, raise your hand in your heart, kind of folks over here. All right, all right, all right excellent. Okay, well, um, for those of you who were here, you know that it is a, probably a little bit overwhelming because. As it turns out, uh, definite atonement brings together a whole myriad of issues, including what atonement is, what exactly it accomplishes, what exactly justice is, what counts as punishment, and on and on. And I said that we just don't have time to get into any, uh, all, excuse me, we don't have time to get into all of those things because this is not a Sunday school series on the atonement, which could be an entire series in and of itself. We could spend a quarter, a whole quarter, just talking about the atonement. Uh, but uh, we did talk about uh, Amaraldism or Amaraldianism, and uh, we talked about Ashurian hypothetical universalism, and I understand that sounds like a nightmare to say, but essentially this is what is referred to sometimes as four-point Calvinism. Uh, even though four-point Calvinism historically is not a thing, it's either one of those two things, Amaraldianism, Amaraldism, or um, hypothetical universalism, and that there is a meaningful attestation to the so-called four-point Calvinism within the Reformed tradition. So it would be a mistake historically to say that if someone didn't hold a definite atonement that they weren't Reformed, okay? That's, that, that's just, that, that, that uh, does not track, unfortunately. Um, we have certainly, after John Calvin, Theodore Beza comes and teaches, makes it very, very uh, clear that he advocates definite atonement. And, uh, and, you know, some of the scholars, the historical Calvin scholars debate whether Calvin actually taught it or not. Uh, most people think that he would have actually sided with Beza at the end of the day and said yes, but just if you just go with what he says on the Institutes, you could probably make a case uh, for either one. I'm not a Calvin scholar. I don't know, but that's what they tell me. Okay, and uh, I say that as someone who's read the Institutes and still does not exactly know. Um, and we talked about different understandings of atonement. We talked about an a moral example theory of atonement, a governmental theory of atonement. We talked about the satisfaction theory. It came from Anselm. We talked about penal substitution. And depending on what you think happened at the atonement is going to affect your understanding of the extent of the atonement, right? It's going to affect your understanding of the extent of the atonement. For example, if you think that Jesus Christ died to be a good moral example— well, then what's the, even the conversation about the extent of the atonement? Well, he died to be an example to everybody. Okay, well, that's going to be one answer. Uh, but if you think that he stood in people's place and he took their punishment, you're going to have a different answer. 
And we talked about one of the challenges, how literally to take the creditor and debitor, debitor, the creditor debtor language of the New Testament and talking about owing a debt to God and um, not being able to pay, uh, not being able to pay our sin debt and having Jesus pay it for it, how literally we're supposed to understand that. And we introduced Richard Baxter's famous reply to John Owen in the death of death, the death of Christ, where he says, listen, if Jesus actually forgave sin at the cross, okay, if he canceled the debt, right, then forgiveness, it becomes impossible after that. Why is that? Someone tell me why. If Jesus actually forgave sins, why? Yeah, there's no guilt. He says when, we're, when the elect repent and believe the gospel, the Bible says that they're forgiven. But if Jesus already actually, not potentially, if he effectively and actually forgave sin in his atonement, there's nothing to forgive. And so Richard Baxter says this, lives, uh, this leads to a lifestyle of, of liberty and licentiousness because the elect, they don't ever get forgiven. They just come to realize that they were always forgiven. That's what he says. Repentance and faith is. They realize they're not ever forgiven. They were never object. They were nothing. They were never objects of wrath. Never that. But the Bible makes clear that we were like the rest of them by nature, objects of wrath. And so, therefore, what happened at the cross couldn't have been something actually being accomplished. It was something potentially being accomplished. And we talk about the difference between atonement as a uh, antidote or a vaccine that Christ created, and then that God chose to inject certain people with on the Reformed story right? Uh, that is to say the elect versus Christ being something that actually purified, like a, uh, like a detox chamber uh, in some of, the, uh, some of the movies that you've seen where you go in and like you're actually purified, you're decontaminated. Which one is it? And then finally, we talked about different understandings of punishment and retributive justice. Does retributive justice mean an identical return um, or does it mean an appropriate answer to sin? If, Jesus, if, it's, it's an, if it's an identical return, then Jesus did not, in fact, take our exact punishment because his punishment was temporal on the cross. It didn't last forever. Uh, and he endured it with hope and joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's not the same kind of suffering that unbelievers will experience in hell, which will be joyless. There will be no hope, and it will be forever. So was that what exactly happened? It's a lot of stuff that goes into trying to say, and you're going to notice that there's, a, there's a going to be a correlation between what happens on the cross and what happens in hell because of the nature of justice and wrath. Yes, sir? Oh, whoa. 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 Yeah, we'll, we're, getting, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. I'm trying, for the people who weren't here last time, I'm trying to recreate the challenge of this doctrine and why it is I have positioned it last. Okay but we are getting there. Okay, so I said we're going to have to make assumptions, but I don't have a bone in my body that makes people uh, that, that makes assumptions. Okay, so I do want to point us to a couple of texts, and we already did this, so this is a little bit of review, but this is so important if we're going to actually stand up a robust doctrine of the atonement. The first is that for whatever else the atonement involves, and I do believe it involves other things. Jesus died to destroy the works of the devil. Um, there, there is there is language of ransom. He's the ransom uh, for all men, 1 Timothy 2. But for whatever other elements are involved in the atonement, penal substitution, meaning punishment as a substitute, is a crucial aspect of what Christ accomplished in making atonement. And so again, I want to just read back from Isaiah 53, 
And then First Peter quotes Isaiah 53. Okay, I want you to listen to this language of him being punished and him being punished as a substitute. Okay? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And so when we hop over to 1 Peter 2.24, we read this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And in 3.18, for Christ suffered also once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then we have the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 5.21, where he who knew no sin, he became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This incredible exchange that happens. And so penal substitution, I'm not saying it's the only thing. In fact, I don't think it is the only element involved in the atonement, but it is a critical aspect of the atonement. Penal substitution. Number two, divine punishment is retributive. Okay, let's pause there. Meaning it is not for the purposes of purification and rehabilitation. Wrath and the, and, and the language of fire and judgment in the New Testament is not language of purifying that then leads to something like eternal life. And this is the universalist, consistent universalist uh, play and claim here. And I've been marinating in the universalists here recently. Uh, Keith DeRose, uh, 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 David Bentley Hart, etc. And, and their arguments hinge on this. Everyone passes through the fire, but the fire is a fire that purifies uh, to prepare you for the eternal state with Christ. Christ is reconciling the world to himself, after all. If, if, if you see a sinner in hell, I'll, I'll, see, I'll show you someone who hasn't been reconciled to God. For as in Adam, all die, shall, shall in Christ, all be made alive. Everyone will be made alive in Christ, so says the universalist. As they pass through the fire, purifies them from sin. But divine punishment is not, is not, purifying. It is not um, rehabilitative. It is retributive. It is retributive. It is payback, okay? But not all retribution requires identical return on sin. It is more fittingly understood as an appropriate return on or answer to sin, okay? So let's take those in turn. First is 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1, we're going to see this idea of retributive justice, the retributive justice of God. In 5 through 8, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction. To, it's not, how could you get any more clear the retributive justice of that? Repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when our Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Retributive, retributive justice. 
Romans 12, 19. Probably one that everyone has read, is probably already familiar with. But it's worth certainly reading in this list of marks of the true Christian. He says, that is Paul, beloved, in verse 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10, let me, we read this. 1 Thessalonians 9 and 10, we read this. I say 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, I apologize. Um, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from God, uh, turned to God, excuse me, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? Who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is a wrath deliverer. Whatever Jesus does delivers us from wrath. He delivers us from the retributive punishment coming towards sin. Okay? Any questions about that? All right, you can also look, so that's the first part, divine punishment is retributive, but also not all retribution requires identical return. We don't lie to people who have lied to us. Okay? As, a, as a, some form of punishment. We don't just steal back what someone stole because that's not compensating someone for loss. And even if you look at the Lex Talionis principle, the eye for eye principle, burn for burn, all the rest of it in the Old Testament, it is, um, it is a, a principle of proportionate justice. And only in maybe in one case is it actually carried out literally. The idea is there should be a fitting and appropriate answer and return on sin, and it shouldn't be disproportionate to the, to the crime or to the sin. Um, you also might think that experiencing punishment that is due to someone else is very different for each person. And we're going to get into what Joe said here. Um, imagine you have two brothers. <laughs> Let's just imagine there are two brothers. And then one is indoors person, introvert, loves reading books. And, uh, but his outdoor extroverted brother gets in trouble and is going to go sent to, get sent to his room. And the introverted brother says, oh, I'll stand in and take his punishment. And like, okay, wow, what a magnanimous act, Elijah, for your brother. Um, you might wonder if anyone's really being punished in that scenario, right? You might wonder how much punishment's going on. I mean, uh, Jude didn't get punished. He's out there frolicking in the field. Elijah is up there reading books. Um, hey, neither one of them are suffering at all because they're doing what they enjoy doing. But it's true that one took the punishment for the other, right? So you might think that someone substituting themselves for someone else's punishment might depend on the kind of person they are. The kind of person that they are. And so you might expect the suffering of Jesus wouldn't have to be identical to the suffering that unbelievers will experience in hell because the kind of man or God-man that he was. Okay? Okay. Finally, because Christ's sacrifice was infinitely meritorious in light of him being the Son of God, Christ's blood is not quantifiable 
the same sacrifice would have been sufficient to save any number of the elect. And so this is where getting in, taking the creditor or debitor language literally, uh, or too uh, overly literally, I should say, really causes you problems. Because on the creditor-debtor relationship, if you have an insolvent apartment tenant and someone is wiping out the debt, they pay all the debt, but guess what? Oh, you found out you had one more person you have to bail out? Well, you got to pay more money. So if, if God had elected one more person, did Jesus have to have one, like, one extra cry of dereliction on the cross? If there had been one less person elected, uh, would he have had to experience less? And the answer is no, it's not quantifiable. Um, we're not going to turn to Exodus 12 right now because we're going to turn to it later. But the idea is the Passover lamb covered the blood of everyone in the house. Okay? It doesn't matter whether you, you know, if you had like one extra kid or you didn't have to like put extra blood on the, on the doorposts and the lentils, right? The, pa- the, the, the blood covered everyone who was in the house because of what it was. 1 Peter 1, 8, uh, 18 and 19. Let me read this to you. It says, where are we here? That's not it. Oh, I'm in the wrong, I'm in Second Peter. <laughs> That's not it. No, apologize. Let's get started. 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. You were ransomed with imperishable blood. You were ransomed with invaluable blood, something that there nothing can be compared to. And then in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, we get this idea. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, we read similarly, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with uh, the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal sacrifice offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so the idea is that it's not like Christ suffered and then his suffering was broken up into discrete chunks. So you've got Tyler's chunk and Laura's chunk and Glenn's chunk and John John's chunk. There is, it's, not, it's not mathematically divisible in that sense, okay? Christ died to redeem. He was infinitely meritorious and he stood in the place of sinners. He was punished by the Father. He took the wrath of God for the sinner. And that therefore those who do not have, uh, and in fact that's why Jesus can say in John, that those who don't believe the wrath of God remains on you. Those who, do not, um, those who do not take the wrath of God through Christ, in other words, which are Christians, he takes it for us, will endure that wrath in hell. There is a relationship between the retributive justice that we are rescued from in Christ and the retributive justice that will be experienced by those people in hell. A very critical parallelism, okay? All right, any questions about that? That's important. I wish I could have just said, just here are these assumptions, but I, don't, I can't do that. That's not how I work. You need to see those things that everyone just says and you've heard forever. You need to see it in the text. All right, well, let's set up some of the context here, okay? The first is the Old Old Testament witness to the sacrificial system. Um, The main thing that I want you to watch for as we go through this section is that atonement actually accomplishes something. 
it really actually does something. It doesn't potentially do something. It doesn't potentially do something. It actually does something. Even when that somebody is all of Israel. All right, so let's look at a couple of examples. First, turn to me to Leviticus chapter 16, which you'll probably remember the, uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And uh, very briefly, we're just going to read a, uh, the last part of it here, and I want you to listen to the language. It says this, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. You shall be clean. Sounds like it's doing something. Sounds like it's accomplishing something. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people. So this is animate objects in and inanimate objects here. Um, and this shall be a statute forever that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once a year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. That effective language, you will actually be made clean. Closely related, but not exactly the same as what's pictured in the Day of Atonement. I guess in some sense it's the same. But it's the sin and guilt offerings that Leviticus lays out. So in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 through 31, listen to this right here. If anyone from the common people sins unintentionally in doing one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. Okay. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering. And that is a picture of putting his sin on this offering. Um, he shall put his hand, uh, lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the uh, altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat shall he shall remove, and the fat is removed from the peace offering, as the fat is removed. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. He shall be forgiven. When atonement is made for this sin offering, this unintentional sin, the priest makes atonement, and forgiveness is effected. Okay? Turn over to Leviticus chapter 6, 1 through 7. This is going to be for intentional sin, or sin that is a more explicit violation of the law. It says this, For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that was found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes he, his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation 
to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. He shall be forgiven as a result of this atoning sacrifice. Okay? They are effective. Also, let me point out this. The atonement is always for somebody. There's no example in the Old Testament of atonement that's not for anyone. It could be for one person. It could be for all of Israel. But it's always for somebody. Some set of concrete people. All or some, but there's never just a atonement just for atonement's sake. Finally, the Passover lamb motif. Turn with me to Exodus 12 briefly. In Exodus 12, we read this in chapters 3 and 4. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each uh, can eat. Uh, shall make your count for the lamb. So it's saying it's making a provision for people who can't afford to do it the exact same way that other folks could. But you read something interesting over here. If you flip over to, um, where's my flip over to? Flipping over to, oh, there's, is it 13? Yeah, there it is. I don't know why it's not up there. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The blood of the lamb is effective for the angel of death passing over. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, that's how the Passover lamb worked on the Passover. Now, why do I have compare with John 136 there? Because what does John say in John 136? Does anyone remember? Related to Passover lamb or lamb, I should say. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It sure sounds like he's doing something. It sounds like he's taking away something. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, turn there with me, you'll see this language in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And there are more examples of this. I'm just showing you, giving you the highlight reel. Okay? Christ is the Passover Lamb, I take it, is not something that is new to anybody. But um, listen to what it says or, uh, here in chapter 5, starting in verse 6, it says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, Paul says, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb actually accomplished something. The Old Testament sin and guilt offerings actually accomplished something. What happened in the Day of Atonement actually accomplished something. When sacrifice happens, it actually accomplishes something, and it's for particular people, or in some cases, even things. Okay? That's the first part. The second part of the context setting up here is the New Testament witness to Christ's sacrificial atonement. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm just going to go, I'm going to read this quickly, so listen quickly. But I want you to listen to how much effective language is in here. Effective. Effective language of Christ as the high priest. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing. He secured something, an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats, we've read this part, uh, 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 or, uh, and then I read this, and I didn't, I didn't even look at the verse anymore. I'm sorry. But for if the blood of bulls and goats, uh, and the sprinkling of defiled person with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Okay, so it sounds like he saw him at the Old Testament. It actually did something. It purified. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself up without blemish, purify our conscience? Sounds like Christ purifies. Sounds like He actually does something, and He does it to us, to our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them. It's a death that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I'm going to skip down just a little bit here. Um, Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Purification, again, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, so he bore sins of people, all this, I've got an object here, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, okay? I say the high priest motif is probably actually not the, um, uh, that's the next bullet point, isn't it? Uh, Probably not the best characterization of this, but the high priest language is so, um, uh, so weaved throughout this that I just, that's how I chose to describe it. You hear a little bit about his priesthood, but also the nature of the sacrifice. Effective, effective, effective. Blood of Jesus actually did something. That's the takeaway. And then finally, we're going to have two passages we, uh, we'll look at later. Um, 1 John 2.2, 2, we heard this preached on a couple of weeks ago, uh, that, that he is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Um, it says that he is the propitiation for the sins of the world in 1 John 4.10. Um, every time that this word propitiation is used in the Old Testament, we see that it does involve that removal of guilt removal of sin, purification. And in John's language, he adds, and this is consistent with the Greek literature at the time, that it also involves appeasing the wrath of God. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Propitiation, uh, purification, and wrath removal is some kind of package deal, okay? All right. That's the New Testament witness to Christ's sacrificial atonement. There'll be more on that. We will look at more passages on that, but I'm Limiting to this for a very specific reason, okay? Next is the New Testament witness to hell. The New Testament witness to hell. How am I doing on time? Oh, nice. All right. We're moving along here at a nice clip. All right, so in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And I say hell. The new, I'm taking hell to be synonymous with eternal judgment. 
Hell is, translates uh, Gehenna, which is uh, uh, was kind of a was a place outside of Jerusalem, named after the Valley of Hinnom, uh, where it was it was at that time it functioned kind of a city dump, but you also had child sacrifices to Molech that happened there in the past, and so it becomes this metaphor of judgment and and um, and destruction. And so anyway, here at the Olivet at the Olivet discourse at the end of it, Jesus says to those who are on his left in verse forty one. Uh, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, and then he goes on to say, "For I was hungry, and you didn't. I was hungry, and you gave me no food, and all the rest." But the idea is that at final judgment, there will be people who depart into eternal judgment, into eternal hell, uh, eternal hell fire. In Second Thessalonians chapter one, we read this: uh, one of the most explicit pictures of judgment. Uh, that Paul provides us, he writes, oops, get back here. He says in verse 9, we already talked about the vengeance piece, coming up to verse 8, he says in verse 9 that they, these unbelievers, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. When Christ returns, there is a reckoning that is going to happen, an act of retributive justice for those who are not in Christ, and some are headed towards eternal destruction. And then finally, we get a, a horrifying, honestly, picture of this destruction. In Revelation chapter 14, we read this in verse 9. And I don't have time to compare this with Revelation, uh, the other passages, but this is talking about eternal judgment from one side of, one angle from eternal of eternal judgment. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on its hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever see, receives the mark of its name. Okay? One final thing, and then we're going to get to the master argument. All right? We'll set up. We gotta, you'll appreciate it, I think, when we get there. This is the... This is, this was John Owen's famous reply, and I think he was right on. I didn't know this was actually his reply until uh, I began studying this. This, was, this has been my reply, but it always, made, it always makes you feel really good when you come to a conclusion and then realize John Owen did. He's like, this is so deeply affirming. But this is the reply to the, if Jesus actually re, um, forgave sins, then forgiveness is impossible, or the elect weren't born under the wrath of God. This is, and this is a huge sticking point for a lot of Amaraldians. Four-point Calvinists, I had a professor in seminary who said the exact same thing, and then just kind of went on, and he was a four-point Calvinist. But the idea is that when we are talking about effective, we are talking about atonement and the scope of the atonement, we are talking about the plan of salvation, not the order of salvation in history. We are talking about the pactum salutis, the covenant of salvation, uh, which is a, an, a covenant made between the Father and the Son to redeem. And you don't have to... Listen, covenant, my Presbyterian friends just love their 
Pactum Salutis. You can just call it a plan, okay? You don't have to call it the Pactum Salutis. You don't have to think it's a formal covenant. It's never called that explicitly in the Bible. But it's the idea that there was a plan before the foundation of the world to redeem and atone. Okay? Not the Historia Salutis, which is how, how history has actually progressed. And once God hit the, said, you know, let there be light, how things actually unfolded in the run of history. Two different things. Two different things. Uh, not, we're not, he's, the, the, the discussion here is not about the chronological order. It's about the purpose of the role of the atonement in God's plan. And so you read this with me. I know it's a mouthful. God's purpose for the atonement is within a larger framework of redemption and the salvific plan of God from the foundation of the world is the proper explanatory context for the nature of the atonement. Not the atonement somehow conceived in an isolated manner or what it means in the run of history. God has chosen to reveal and imply uh, the benefits of the atonement. Uh, what, uh, what, sorry, what means in the run of history, God has chosen to reveal and apply the benefits of the atonement. So what is this, um, what is this business of the eternal plan of God? What am I talking about when I say the pactum salutis, how this is the context for the discussion? Because I don't mind saying, if you think the context of the discussion is how the run of history has gone, it's very obvious from the New Testament that those who have not yet repented and believed the gospel are not forgiven. And it's very obvious that if you repent and believe, you are forgiven. So from the boots on the ground perspective, from the boots on the ground perspective in history, Jesus certainly dispositionally does, from our perspective, look like the bronze snake held up in the wilderness and that everyone who looks to him is saved. That's true. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's great. That's absolutely true. Not, not actually what's being talked about in discussions of definite atonement, though. Okay, That's a run of history discussion about how the atonement is applied in creation and redemption not the role of atonement, the purpose of the atonement in the larger plan. Okay, so what about this eternal plan? Um, Matthew 25, 34, again, in the judgment um, scene here, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's something that happened from the foundation in the world that had to do with a kingdom and a king. It wasn't an afterthought. This is this plan, this eternal plan. Okay? In John 10, 26, we see another angle of uh, this plan. He says, uh, Jesus says this. Let me get, let's make sure I get enough context here. Yeah, we'll just start 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do, I do in my Father's name, bear witness to me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So remember right there, you're getting a plan of God comment. Remember the reason, well, I feel like I've said this a million times. Yeah, the reason you don't believe is because you're not a sheep. Now what's the boots on the ground way to say things? You're not one of Christ's sheep because you haven't believed. That's not what John's saying. Okay, this is the eternal perspective. This is the eternal plan. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me. Something has happened before. Has given them to me. Past tense is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Uh, and we move to Ephesians. We go over to Ephesians. We're going the wrong way to get to Ephesians. Here we go. Let's see here. 
Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me through the, by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So there's been a plan. There's been a plan the whole time. Before the first moment of creation, at least logically prior to creation, beyond creation, there has been a plan uh, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose, eternal purpose that he has realized in our Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal plan. There's been a plan in the works. The discussion of definite atonement is a discussion of what's the role the atonement plays in the plan. All right? One more example here from Hebrews chapter 10. Oh, I'm going to land the plane. I feel it, y'all. I'm going to get there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 mentions this. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So Jesus apparently accomplished something that sanctified people for all time, forever. Okay, uh, It was something that didn't need to be repeating, but it also sanctified everyone. There wasn't anyone who got some other different kind of purification that happened or a different kind of sanctification. He sanctified all people at all times who were in Christ. That's kind of the idea there. And so listen to the confession right here. Oh, I don't have that. Oh, you can't look at my football play. Okay. The confession says this, it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, and to be, to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified. Okay, so, so there is a plan. The question of the atonement isn't, from our perspective right now, are people just automatically saved because, because uh, Jesus died for them? No, they have to repent and believe the gospel. That's how things have come out in redemptive history and in the order of things. The question is, what is the role of the atonement in this plan that we've been reading about from the foundation of the world? Not, how does God, once he hits play, decide to go apply the plan? Okay, so here's my football play. Trips left, strong 43 delay, something the University of Alabama clearly can't pull off. Um, but... Uh, this is why do I have this up here? This is obviously a risky analogy for our crowd. I get it. Just go with me, okay? Um, appropriately conceived, the question of the atonement's purpose in the role of the redemptive plan of God is like asking about the role of the running back in a drawn-up rushing play, running the ball into the end zone, and it's not like asking about how long it will take him. To do so, blocking techniques for linemen or when the scoreboard will reflect six points. All right? Um, the question of the atonement is a question, is a whiteboard. This is a whiteboard, right, for the play. The question of the extent of the atonement is a whiteboard question, not a gameplay question. Okay? At the level of the whiteboard, all, that's, all that is required for me to tell you how we're going to score the touchdown is say, 
that right there. There's a blocking scheme and a running back. That explains how we're going to get into the end zone. It doesn't matter that once we get on the field, people have to extend their arms and move their legs and have to cross lines and things. That's a gameplay question. So imagine the person's like, well, how do you, the running, okay, you're telling me that this, that is sufficient to get into the end, that's going to get us into the end zone? Look at the, the running back here is, is, uh, is Jesus in my analogy, just to be very clear. Okay, so, so you're telling me that the atonement, or more specifically the atonement, the atonement is effective in getting into the end zone? Yes. All right, so they go out there and it's like the ball is snapped and someone's like, help, they're not in the end zone. What's happening? They're asking about a gameplay question. Well, of course. Well, he's got to grab the ball, and these linemen have to extend their arms, and he's got to move his legs, and this person has to do all the rest. Once the once the once the uh, referee uh, blows the whistle and signals that the the gameplay can actually begin or continue, whatever the case may be, let's say they're coming out of a timeout. But the idea is, the idea is at the level of the whiteboard, this is all that's required. Everyone can look at this. Or most people can look at this. And understand that you have a quarterback, okay? He's going to hand off to the running back. Wide receivers block, okay? These two, unlike Alabama's wide receivers, they don't do anything except drop balls. And then the running back is going to run through the slot there, the gap, the free gap. That's it. That's how we're getting into the end zone. Now, hut, let's break. Let's do the play. Now when we run the play, now we're in the run of history. The question of the atonement is a question about, as a whiteboard question, about what the atonement accomplishes in the plan. Not a question about what happens when the huddle breaks on creation and redemption and things begin to unfold, where very clearly it is, we must in fact look to Jesus in order to receive forgiveness. If that's confusing to you, I'm sorry, that's the best time I have. Come, come ask me questions. Come ask all the questions. I'm happy to, to walk you through it. We're one minute over. Let me pray for us. Next time, we're going to get into the master argument for uh, definite atonement. And then either we're going to close out or we'll have one more session uh, before we move on. Okay? Let me advance this for, for John John here. All the way up. Okay. Lord Jesus, we're thankful to be able to consider these things. We pray that we do so wisely and humbly. Uh, we are thankful for Christ whose atonement is effective in the spirit of Old Testament sacrifice, but is the perfect expression and final expression of those things, purifies our consciences from dead works, raises us up with Christ. We're thankful for this gospel, this good news, and pray that it would seep into all of who we are. And ask in Jesus' name, amen.